0: Open your Bibles with me to John chapter 4. We're going to continue in our study today, but it's not a study. It really is not. There's some things that we have gone through and spent sometimes a better part of a year studying together. But I sense a, a, a different purpose in this. I sense a different a, a different work of God here God is changing God is changing really the the fabric of what this church is about and it's his church so he's entitled to do that isn't he I could have got a better amen than that it's his church isn't it Uh, we all understand it's his church right (laughs) okay you may tell friends you can come to my church and that's fine and I'm pastor this is my church I pastor but I know it's his church he died for it. He birthed it. You and I are all here because we belong to him. This is his church and it's for his purposes. So he can do what he wants to do, right? Okay. I wasn't too enthusiastic either. <clears throat> he can do what he wants to do. You may not like something and you, I may not like something, but it's what he likes. It's what he wants that matters. And I've learned that as I begin to get in line with what he wants and he desires, I don't have to pray for him to get involved. He's already involved in what he wants. He wants. And what he matters. And really is, we're, we're at a place where, I, what, as the pastor of this church, as the sh- shepherd of this church, my role at this point is to see, sense where he's going and follow him. But isn't that what they did in the Old Testament? When the cloud moved, they moved. And when the cloud stopped, they stopped. So their whole idea was to keep their eye on the cloud. If you've got your eye on the cloud or eye on the pillar of fire and you do what it does, then you'll be okay. And that's all we've got to do right now. God's changing the fabric of this church. This church has been a teaching center. We've had all kinds of well-known teachers in the world come through here and God has blessed this church with, with pastors that have been able to teach and, and it has been a teaching center. But what, what teaching does, and it's a very valuable asset, it's part of one of the fivefold gifts as a pastor and teacher in, in there. Now, teaching gives us understanding. It gives us information and understanding. But understanding and information, will all, you can have all the understanding in the world and not change. But as we're seeing in the stories we're looking at, it's an encounter with God that changes you. The children of Israel had teaching. They had the Torah. They had the, the Ten Commandments were handed down to them. They had Abraham as a father. They had Isaac as a father. They had Jacob as a father. They had Joseph who had gone on before them to Egypt. And, we, and then they had Moses God had given them as a leader. And they brought them out of Egypt. And we saw that in Exodus chapter 19, God told Moses, I want you to bring my people out because I'm going to come down on this mountain and meet with them. And I'm going to come down on this mountain to meet with them because I want to have an impact on them. In that case, he said, so that they would not sin. And we've looked at that story. We've been looking at that over the last few weeks. This is a story in John chapter 4 of somebody that has an encounter with God. In this case, it's God in the flesh in Jesus. So let's look at this. This is kind of our key scripture here. We'll just start in verse 10. Jesus meets this woman, a Samaritan woman, in a well in Samaria that he is passing through. And he said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, Give me a drink, because he'd asked her for a drink of physical water, you have asked of him and he would give you living water. As we talked about before, he's wetting her appetite. He's trying to lift her desire off of natural things and to whet her appetite with a desire for something that's eternal, which is a relationship with him. So he's saying to her, look, you've come out for a well, to this well, to satisfy the, the longing, the need that you have, your body has for water, to, which is what's the most important thing we need to sustain our body, to sustain physical life in our body. But I'm telling you that I have something for you. If, notice what he says, if you knew who it is, If you knew who it is that's talking to you, see how important that is, to know who's talking to you, to know whose presence you're in? So we come in here on Sunday mornings, each of us, and we may most likely not conscious of it, each of us with some awareness of whose presence we're coming into here. It may be your friend's. It may be coming to church because, you know, I get to see some of my friends that I don't normally get to see, and that's your motivation for coming, and and that's okay if that's what gets you here. But if that's all it ever is, you can do that other places. You're missing, you're missing what God has for you. How many people sat next to Jesus? How many people heard Him speak and missed what He had to give them because they didn't recognize who it was that they were in the presence of? So he says her, if you knew who it was that you are sitting here with, you would ask something from me. And what you would ask of me is water, all right, but not a water that satisfies your physical longing, a water that satisfies a spiritual longing that you may not even know you have. You would ask of him and he would give you Living water that's going to live forever, water that will bring you everlasting life. We've mentioned before that everlasting life isn't a term that refers to how long you live because your spirit man's going to live forever somewhere. It's the quality of life. It's the life at the level that God lives it. And we spend so much of our life, so much of our time focused on and devoted to life at this level, all the time having available to us inside of us Life at God's level. And when you begin to live life at God's level, the life at this level doesn't affect you. You don't get worn out from it. I'm not saying your body doesn't get tired, but you don't get worn out from it. It doesn't burn you out when you live life at His level because God doesn't get burned out. You need to rest your body. I'm not talking about that. Jesus said, I have something for you that you don't know what it is. And if you'd recognize who you were with, then you would ask of me, and I would have given you this... then he goes on to talk to her, and she said, Well, Lord, you know, what about... Or not, Lord, she says, Sir, uh, the woman said, Give me this water, verse 15, that I may not thirst or come here to draw. And he said, Go call your husband. We'll talk about this later because he's getting things right in her life. She said, I don't have a husband. He said, That's right, you don't have a husband. You've already had five, and the guy you're living with right now is not your husband. She said, I perceive you're a prophet. Now she starts talking about worship. Our fathers say that on this mountain you ought to worship. You Jews say that it's in Jerusalem. And Jesus' answer to her is that, verse 21, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. In other words, it's not where you worship. It's who you're worshiping and how you're worshiping. You worship what you don't know. Notice that. We worship what we... we, we worship. We know what we worship for salvations of the Jews. But an hour is coming... And now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. And that's what we're looking at. This is the longing of God's heart. The longing of God's heart when we come in here on Sunday morning, when we come in here on Wednesday night. The longing of God's heart when you get up in the morning. The longing of God's heart all through your day. The longing of God's heart is true worshipers. Of people that will worship Him. True worshipers in spirit and in truth. So all we really know about this and all we're looking at this point is that there's a God side to this. God's longing for this. He's waiting for this. His heart's desire. There's only thing you can give God. The only thing that you can give God that He doesn't have and He longs for is your worship of Him. You can satisfy The desire of the one who's given everything for you, done everything for you, You, every breath you have comes from Him. And you can satisfy the desire of His heart by just worshiping Him. And so that's what we've been talking about. We went back and we looked in Exodus, the story where God brought His people out of Egypt. And He brings Moses up onto the mountain after three months of being out there. And He says to Moses, He says, go and tell my people this. I'm the one that brought them out on eagles' wings out of bondage in Egypt. And I brought them out here to be with me. And I want to take them to this place, a promised land. But the first thing I want to do is have them have an encounter with me, an experience with me, so that they'll know who I am. Because understand this, what worship is. (coughs) Worship's not a song you sing. Sometimes we have this attitude, praise our fast songs and worship slow songs. It has nothing to do with the tempo, It has to do with the heart and the focus. The heart and the focus. A lot of slow songs we sing aren't worship songs. They're not bad. They're just not worship songs. Worship is a response to seeing who He is. That's why you can choose any moment you want to to give thanks. You can choose any moment you want to give praises to God because that originates with you. But worship... Is a response to something you see. So if you don't see it, you can reach your heart towards it. But true worship, the connection that it takes, comes from when you get a glimpse or more of who He is. And so that's why we're going to take a look at these stories of people that got a glimpse, they got an experience of who He is. So God tells Moses, I I want you to get them ready. It takes three days to get them prepared. And then I'm going to come down on this mountain and I'm going to reveal myself to them and bring them out. This is in Exodus chapter 19. Bring them out. But you've got to put a barrier around because they might break through and try to come up on on the top of the mountain. And if they do, they're going to die. Why? Because they're not a holy people and I'm a holy God. And so Moses tells them that. The God who brought you, the God who delivered you, The God who brought you out of bondage wants to meet with you face to face. He wants to come in your presence and be among you and reveal himself to you. That's what happens here on Sunday morning. Because you may not have come out of Egypt, but you came out of the world. And I came out of the world. Egypt represents the world, the world's way, the world's system, the world's ideas, the world's philosophies, the world's rulers. And God brought you on eagle's wings. The eagle's wings were his son's life and the wings of the Spirit brought you out of that world and into this world of the kingdom of God Colossians 1.13 says you were delivered out of the domain the authority the control of darkness the kingdom of darkness and you've been transferred in to the kingdom of His beloved Son and the one who brought you out of bondage the one who brought you out of death the one who brought you out out of a death sentence for all of eternity in hell. The one who brought you out of that and paid for it with his own life wants to come and meet with you just like he wanted to meet with the children of Israel on that mountain. So God came down on that mountain in a form of lightning and thundering because he said, I want the people to see me in this way so that they won't sin. So they'll realize who it is that's given them these commandments. God gave Moses the Ten Commandments to bring to them. They came down off the mountain. He came down off the mountain with those Ten Commandments. And God and the people came to Moses and says to him, excuse me, he didn't come down with them written yet. He just came down and told them what it was. And the people come to him and says, this is more than we wanted to handle. They said, here's what we want to do. Uh, We're going to go back into the camp. It's safe there. You go talk to to God. Come tell us what he says. And then they said this, and we'll do everything he says. Isn't that what the modern, what the church has become? We've got a pastor or somebody we're going to pay so that they can go spend time with God and come on Sunday morning and tell us what God says, and then, that, then we'll go do it. Because their confidence is, if we hear what God says, then we'll go do it. And that's what they did. Of course, as we've discovered, they didn't do what he said. Why? Because it required something more than just hearing it through somebody else. It required something more than a man spending time in God's presence and coming and saying, this is what God's saying. They had to have an experience for themselves because when they left talking to Moses, they left with the best of intentions. But when they went back to their camp, back to their families, back to the issues of their life, what God said through Moses faded That's why God says, no, they need an encounter with me. God gives Moses some instructions, calls him back up on the mountain. This time when he calls him back up on the mountain, he gives him a pattern for a church called the tabernacle of Moses in the wilderness. The purpose of that tabernacle was so that God could create a place where he could legally come down and dwell in their presence all the time. And they couldn't come into his presence completely, The high priest could one day a year wearing the correct robes having done the right sacrifices. But all of that was to train them and prepare them to understand that you just can't come sauntering into the presence of God any way and any time you want. They couldn't. Of who he was, that he was to be reverenced and he was to be respected and he was to be feared in the reverential kind of fear so Moses is being given these instructions, and while Moses is being given these instructions, they're building an idol down in the camp. And God's angry and sends Moses down, and Moses does takes care of the issue down there, there, comes back up, and God says, I've had it with them, I'm going to fry them on the spot. They've been nothing but stiff-necked, and you and I are going to start over again. And Moses argues and says, you can't do that. Now you better be right when you tell God you can't do something. But he did, and God changed his mind. One translation says, "God repented." God changed his mind, because Moses argued God's own words back to him. And God says, "All right, but here's what I've got to do. I'll send an angel ahead to send you into the promised land, but my presence isn't going to go with you." And the people already go. But Moses says, "No, no, no, no. If your presence doesn't go with us, I'm not going. See, the church has become satisfied with the things God does for us, with the because provi- God said, I'll take care of you, I'll provide for you, I'll give you direction, I'll provide your food, I'll protect you, I'll do all that, but I'm not going with you. And they were ready to go, and that's where so much of the church is today. <clears throat> we're ready to have the things God provides, the blessings God provides, the good things, we're re- and we don't have a hunger for Him who brought us out of the world and drew us to himself. In many cases, it's because we never tasted it because most of us have come into a church and grown up in a church that doesn't seek that either. We seek the things of God. It's interesting. Psalm 103. such a beloved psalm. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Talks about five benefits that are listed in the first few few verses. Verse 7 says, To the children, to Moses, I made known my ways. To the children of Israel, I made known my deeds. You can know somebody's deeds from a distance, but you can only know their ways by being close to them. I've used this example to describe that before. One of the things that my wife and I, our, our anniversary a couple of weeks ago, we came back from, we've just gone out for the day, we came back and came back home and I've forgotten, we'd already eaten, and I just, we came in our kitchen, I just put on some beautiful music, and, and you're gonna embarrass her. <clears throat> and just in our kitchen floor, we danced together. She loves to do that. Oh, I, I just got brownie points. <laughs> Maybe not with her. <laughs> Here's my point. When you've known somebody for 46 years and you've danced with them, she, she follows my lead. She doesn't stand there and I have to say, all right now, honey, we're going to put your left foot back, your right foot back because I'm putting my left foot forward. And now I'm going to put my right foot forward so you need to put your left foot back. And now we're going to turn to the left. I don't have to explain to her what I'm about to do because she knows my ways. She can tell when I'm about to turn this way, the beginning of movement this way, she immediately senses that I'm going to turn this way and she responds to that. Why? She knows my ways. If you've been married very long, you know your spouse's ways. You can tell when they're getting upset and not say a word. You can feel the atmosphere in the car or in the kitchen when you walk home. Why? Because you know each other's ways. That's a result of spending time together intimately. God revealed His ways to Moses, but His acts, His deeds, the children of Israel knew. The church knows His acts. We come and we sit and we hear teachings and what those teachings do is tell us what God has done and what God will do. It teaches the things and they're important to know. There's nothing wrong with that. We need to know those things. But there's so much more. Teaching cannot teach you His ways. Instruction cannot teach you His ways. It's an experience with Him. It's a connection with Him at a level that's not in your mind. It's not information. It's an experience that connects you to Him where you get a sense of His ways. I know what God would do in this situation because I've spent time with Him. Not just Him talking to me. I know I'm getting to know what He's like. So we need the teaching. We need the instruction. But that's not going to teach us His ways. And for all the years that this church has been around, primarily we've been a teaching center. Yeah. And so what, and this is God, well, during worship is when God spoke this to me. During worship, what we've done, and there's nothing wrong with it because we follow what God has done. We've been a teaching center and that teaching center has taught us well God's deeds, what God has done. Many of you sitting in this seat, a blue seat right now, know so much more than most people, most Christians in a third world country may ever know about the Bible. You've been so well instructed, and I'm not talking about me, but I mean we just have, and just the church in this nation has. But how few of us know his ways. Because when you know his ways, you won't want to disappoint him. You won't want to hurt him. See, David, who wrote all those Psalms, David knew his ways. That's why David's first reaction when confronted with his sin was, I've sinned against my God. Not... Oh, my goodness, what are the people going to think? Oh, what a terrible thing. His immediate reaction is the impact this was going to have against his God. How many of us have that reaction when we do something wrong? Not, or am I in trouble? Is God mad at me? Or have I hurt him? Have I hurt him? I don't want to do anything that hurts my wife. That doesn't mean I haven't and don't and may not do in the future. But I don't do it on purpose. And when I discover that I've hurt her, it hurts me to realize that I've hurt her. And I know she feels the same way. Why? Because I love her. There's a, a heart relationship there. I don't. What, what, what controls me from doing something wrong, going out and chasing after somebody else, is not that it's wrong, and that is wrong. It's just that I don't want to hurt her. Is that what governs our relationship with what's right and wrong in God's sight? Or is it, my goodness, I may be punished for it. God wants to draw us to a place where we have a connection with Him that's beyond our mind. We have a connection with Him that's beyond information, that's beyond teaching so that we don't just know His acts. We begin to know His ways. We begin to know a sense of His presence. See, Moses had a taste of that. That's why Moses was not content to move from there unless God's presence went with him but the church of the United States has been so content in fact in some ways happier to know his deeds but not have his worry about whether his presence goes with us because his presence might expose some things his presence may require some things of us and see with teaching and I'm a teacher with teaching you're in control well I've heard it now it's up to me what I do with it but when I have an encounter with God there's either I obey him or I don't obey him See, the teaching I can take home and think about it, listen to the CD over and over again, and those are all good things to do, but that's not obeying it. Because I'm learning more, 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 I'm learning more. We've been very much in a learning mode, but now it's time to do. Now it's time to do. That's why I believe in all my heart that the 99 has come at this time, and this is an appointed time by God. There's a change taking place here. There's a change taking place in the, in the direction of this church, in the purpose of this church. It's always been there, but we're moving now by the grace of God and by the direction of God to another level. See, we like to think, oh, I'm going to a deeper level. Most of us get too deep. Jesus wasn't that deep. It gets so deep, nobody knows where you are. <laughs> that people can't reach and touch you Jesus was reachable and touchable you know he spent very little time in church and he went to church he went to the synagogue because they found him there teaching in the synagogue but the rest of his time he was out among people praying for them, meeting their needs talking to them out there he was out there not just gathered in church because we've learned before he's called us to be fishers of men right somebody was saying to me last night this is like fishing in a bathtub (laughs) there ain't no fish in the bathtub (laughs) they're out there in the water and God is beginning to change the focus of this church but to do that we have to have an experience with him an encounter with his presence all right Let's go, let's look at somebody else that had an experience with him. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah is one of the most significant books in the Bible, let alone the the Old Testament. It's often called the the Old Testament version of the book of Revelation. Revelation. There are more references in here to the Messiah than anywhere else in the Old Testament. Very significant book. One of the significance of it to me is it's written at a time in the history of the nation of Israel, both the North and the Southern nation, which is not unlike where we are today the church. They were doing all the things they were supposed to do, they were coming to the temple, they were bringing their sacrifices. They were going through all the things that they were supposed to do. They were showing up. They were going through it. But their heart was in a very different place. We're going to get to chapter 6, but I want to look, first of all, at the background here of of where where they are and why God's going to do what He's going to do. So let's go to chapter 1, Isaiah chapter 1. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, For the Lord has spoken, I have nourished and brought up children, referring to Israel, and they rebelled against me. Now earlier this year we had a time of fasting and prayer, and I was focused in that time on what we're talking about right now, on this change in direction that I sensed was coming. I focused my prayer, I focused that because I really believe in this God was calling us to change the way we worshipped, to come to the place who He was calling us to be true worshipers and was going to lead us there and show us how to do that. And as I wanted to go into chapter 6, I really felt in, in, in the third day of that fast, the Lord impressed me to go back and read the first five chapters and it was eye-opening. I mean, I'd read them before, but it was eye-opening in this context because he showed me where we where they were. Look at this verse 3. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know my and my people do not consider or understand. What he's saying this, and this is not a compliment by the way. He's saying I'm the one that brought you out of Egypt. An ox knows its master. What was the other one? A donkey knows where its food comes from. <laughs> but you, O Israel, don't know who your master is. And you, O Israel, don't know who your source is. So basically, it was saying an ox is smarter than you are, and a donkey's wiser than you are. They were doing all the right things. They were attending temple service, they were performing the sacrifices, but it's not what they were doing outwardly, It' what was going on inwardly that God was talking to. God's saying, you do the things you were taught to do, but your inner attitude, He's gonna, we're going to look at more of it. He said, but notice what it starts with. You don't know who it is you're worshiping when you give these sacrifices, you don't know who it is you're worshiping when you come to the, to the, to the, to the temple and perform your ob- obligations. You don't know who it is you're doing this with. You're not aware of who it is. And an ox knows. It's Notice that master. An ox realizes somebody owns him. Somebody directs him. So he serves somebody. An ox knows that. A dumb ox knows that. But Israel... You're not as smart as that ox. See, an ox isn't prideful. An ox isn't capable of thinking, hey, I did this myself. An ox isn't capable of thinking that, hey, you know what? I take care of myself. I'm pretty smart. I, can, I don't need that owner. I can do this. My-. An ox knows he needs his master. And most animals, like a dog, that's why a dog's a man's best friend. A dog will want, just wants to please you if you're his master. He just wants to please you because somewhere he knows you're the one that he's under. You're the one that takes care of him. A dog's smarter than most Christians because a dog knows who his master is. Dog's loyal to his master. Dog will follow his Master. There are stories of a a master dying and the dog sleeps at the gravesite. They can't get the dog away. Jesus went to the cross and his disciples scattered until they had an experience with the Holy Spirit and his indwelling presence. Where are we? What motivates us? Are we doing the things we're supposed to do because we're supposed to do it and we're good doobies? You know, we, that's, we do what we're supposed to do and that's good. Or is it out of a love for him and a reverence for him? Because, but that comes from knowing who he is. And we can know that intellectually, but what moves us is when we know it with our heart. Well, God has some things to say about where they are, Israel. By the way, He knows where we are. Verse 4, Alas, a sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. That speaks to the church today. The Holy One of, They have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. They've turned away backwards. Let's go over to... Um, there's so much in here we could look at. Let's go over to verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord. Well, no, let's go up to... And um, to verse 7. Your country is desolate, your cities are burned with fire. Strangers devour your land and the presence. Isn't that what's happening in this nation? And it's desolate and overthrown by strangers. So the daughters of Zion... "...is left as a booth in the vineyard, and a hut and garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city? Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a very small remnant, we would have become like Sodom, and we would have been made like Gomorrah, cities that were destroyed because of their iniquity. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the the law of our God, for your people of Gomorrah, to what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me? What's the purpose of what you're doing to me, God says?" says the Lord. I've had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of the fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or the lambs of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample in my courts? Bring no more futile or vain sacrifices. Your incense is an abomination to me. The new moons and the Sabbaths, no, those are festivals that they, prevent, that they celebrated, and the callings of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and, and the sacred meeting. These are sacred meetings to him, but are they sacred to us? And God's not angry at us; He's not judging us; He's calling us; He's waking us up to see where we are. Your new moons, your appointed feasts, my soul hates. It doesn't hate them; they are trouble to me. I'm weary of bearing them. See, I talked to you a few weeks ago about what God hears, and I told you the story about when I was, my wife and I were, in Bible school, and we were part of this little fellowship group, and and we were singing to the Lord. I told you the story about the woman singing next to me off-key. I mean, oh, it's terrible. And I just, inside of my heart, was just complaining, saying, God, that sounds terrible. And I told you the Lord spoke so clearly to me. He said, let me tell you how it sounds to me. It's beautiful. Because what I hear is the love in her heart for me. See, God doesn't hear necessarily what we hear. In other people around us, or in ourselves because then he talked to me about what he heard in my singing he said I hear pride I hear arrogance what does God hear when we come together what does God hear when we pray what does God hear when we lift our voices to sing to him what does God hear He's not hearing the sound. He's not hearing whether you're on key or off key. He's hearing the heart, what's coming out of our hearts. This is why we're going to make some of the changes that we're going to make in just even the physical way we do worship. It's got to come out of our hearts, your heart and my heart. Not as spectators to what's done up here by people that are very good at that, but, but it's going to come out of our hearts to Him. This is what He's listening for. And this is what He longs okay verse 15 when you spread out your hands I will hide my fa- eyes from you even though you make many prayers I will not hurt here for your hands are full of blood Wash yourselves. Now look, there's hope here. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease from doing evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Come now. Talk to me about this. Come. Bring this to me. Be honest with me. Be honest before me. Come to me and reason together. And look what I'll do says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be made white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you are willing, that's a hard issue, and obedient, you shall eat of the good of the land. That verse is so often quoted for prosperity purposes, and I believe it applies to that. But he's not talking about eating here in this context, he's talking about him, If you're willing, and that's where God's asking us today, are we willing and obedient? Are we willing to change? Are we willing to let go of what we're used to? Are we willing to to look honestly at ourselves and let God tell us where we are? Are we willing to do that? And if we're willing and we're willing to open and talk to Him about it, He'll change all this. But it starts by seeing where we are. Now go to chapter 6. That's the preface. That's what God... That's where things were. Now we're going to go to an encounter that Isaiah has with God. God's calling him and preparing him to be his prophet and release him to speak on his behalf to these same people. And this is how God prepares him. This is how God prepares him. He calls him into an audience with him in heaven. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. Now what we're talking about here is worship is a response to seeing who God is and what God's like. We see that the children of Israel pulled away and were satisfied without without, without God going with them because they didn't know who He was. Moses knew His ways so that's why Moses said I'm not going anywhere that you don't go. Now God's calling a man named Isaiah, and God wants to have him have that same experience where he sees God. He gets an image, an encounter with God that changes him forever. Because God knew that what he was calling him to do was not going to be popular, was going to take a boldness. He has to go speak to kings. But he's got such a reputation that the people are afraid of him, even because he speaks for God. He's gonna go speak to kings, he's gonna say things people don't want to hear, and he needs to know. He needs to know there's gotta be a boldness that does not come just because he has a mental understanding. It's gotta come from something greater than himself. It can't come from his degrees and his and his and his uh, uh you know his his uh degrees that he has on his wall, his diplomas. It can't come from his, from his um, uh, resume. Okay. It can't come from his experience. To do this has got to come from an encounter with God, knowing who this God is. Yes. Hallelujah. Yes. So God calls him up. Whether this is a vision or a phrase, we don't know what it is. By the way, we're not going to look at it because we don't know much, but Paul had the same experience. Yes. Paul on the road to Damascus. Uh-huh. Not only did he have an experience with Christ on the road to Damascus but Paul tells us in Second Corinthians chapter 11 or 12 that later on he was called up into the third heaven and saw things that were unutterable the ki- in the year that King Uzziah died I saw the Lord now there's nice songs we sing about that's what you are fine. sitting on a throne high and lifted up and the train the, the back the edge of his robe filled the temple And above it stood seraphim. Now some of this is hard to picture. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. That's not even God's voice. That's the voice of the angel. And the post of heaven is shaken with the power of this voice. Imagine, you're just suddenly brought into this place. And you see a throne. We looked last week when Moses saw him and we saw a little bit about what his feet in the, in the ground he stood on was like. He saw his throne and these angels that he cannot quite describe are running, flying around the throne claim, claiming, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. I don't believe that those angels serve... Four or eight-hour shifts, <laughs> and as they get to the end of one of the shifts, saying, "My goodness, this is—it's almost over. My goodness, this time. It's time for the next shift to come in." My point is this: they saw God's face, and the only response they can have is, "Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts." Just look in Revelation chapter four. We may get there at some point. Every time somebody shouts that, the 24 elders fall on the ground, cast their crowns before Him. Not because it's the third part of the program or the bulletin for that Sunday service. It's a response to seeing who He is. His greatness and His majesty. This is the response of angels that are used to seeing Him. And they still cry, holy, holy, holy. They don't get tired of it. They don't get weary of it. Because it's not something they do. It's a response to who he is. Verse 4, And the posts of, sh- of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. Now we, you know, some of you have gone to concerts and they have these smoke machines that blow smoke out, you know, like that to create an atmosphere. That's not what this is. This is part of the glory of God. This is part of the glory of God. It's a heaviness of the air. Now it's not probably not smoke. So you gotta understand. When you have a human being who's seen things that aren't aren't human, that are beyond human experience, we've only got so many words in your vocabulary that you can use. So when you see something and you're going to describe it to somebody else, your computer-like brain has to go through your vocabulary and try to find the word that most closely identifies that, but you're limited to the words you know. He's seeing things that no man's ever seen before that, that, that are beyond human experience, trying to find human words to describe it. So I don't believe it's just smoke rolling out. I believe it's a heaviness of God in the atmosphere. Look at his response to seeing who God is. Now by the way, I try to look this up. Jewish tradition tells, them, tells us, this is what Jewish tradition was, that Isaiah was the king's nephew, that the king and his, Isaiah's father were brothers which means he's used to being in court, which means he comes from a royal family. And every indication we have is that Isaiah was a righteous man, a good man. He was a a, a noble, good, well... and obviously from the way he writes, he was well-educated. But look at his response to seeing who God is. And I said, this is what I saw, and the next verse, as soon as I saw who God is, my first reaction is to realize who I am, and I said, "Woe is me, for I am undone." Notice he doesn't say, "Hey, this is cool stuff, man! Look where I am! I'm in God's presence, man! This is neat! Wow! My fortunate to be here!" Wow! He immediately says, "Oh, woe is me! What am I doing here?" If we're coming in here to meet with this same God, what's the attitude that we come in with? It's based on what we think of Him. I don't mean whether we like Him or love Him, but what we know of Him. See, Isaiah, this is a shock to him. As much of the laws he knew, as much of the scriptures he knew, as much of the that he knew, he never, he didn't know this. He comes into an encounter with God, and the first thing he sees is who God is. The next thing he realizes is who He is in relation to that God. And says, whoa, woe is me. He's not saying, oh, I'm in trouble. He's realizing what he's like in himself when he sees what God is really like. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Before God could send him out, he had to have an encounter with this God that changed him. No longer would he gonna, you know, could he be tempted to strut around when miracles were performed through him. See, with Moses, God had to take Moses through 40 years of training to get out of him all his own ambition, all his confidence in what he could do, to come to the end of realizing, I can't do anything on my own for God. And that's when God could begin to use him. Now his case it took forty years. Isaiah gets it done in one moment's time <laughs> by seeing who God is. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Woe is me! So he had to see who he was, and he had to see who God was. Verse six. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal which he had taken from the tongs of the altar. You read about the the tabernacle of the wilderness, you have a better understanding of what that is. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. Now that coal is taken from an altar. In the tabernacle of the wilderness, there are two altars. There's an altar, there's a brazen altar, where there are sacrifices made 24 hours a day. That altar represents the cross the price that was paid for your sin and my sin. Then there's an altar of incense on the inside which represents worship to God. And what they did, is they would take one of the coals off of the altar, the brazen altar that represented the cross, and the, high pri- the priest would bring that in and use that to ignite the altar of incense which represented prayers and worship that were going up to God. So they couldn't just burn anything that represented prayers and worship. It had to have been purified from the brazen altar, which represents the cross. And this angel is saying, now that you see who you are on your own, now that you realize that regardless of how good a man you are, that compared to God, woe is you. <laughs> you are a man of unclean lips, and you live among an unclean pe- people of unclean lips. I have an answer now that you see that. So he took the tongs of something that represents the cross, the fire of the cross, and he touched his lips with it. And this now cleanses his mouth, not because he changed who he was at the point, it changed because of the the cross. Verse 8, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Who shall I send who will go for us? I hear that voice today. God saying, who shall I send? Now we saw, and we'll see it again before we're done, in John chapter 4, this woman comes to Jesus, and we talked about her in the beginning. And Jesus is trying to bring her to a taste of something that she's going to desire, which is this eternal life. And the moment she gets a sense of who he is, because she said, well, you know, give me this water, she starts talking about the Messiah. She said, well, I hear the Messiah is going to come. And he said, I am he. At that moment, she gets up. She can't sit still. And she runs into our community and begins to tell men, and we've talked about that before, because she already had a reputation with men. She tells men, come see a man that told me everything about me. So there had to be something about her coming now that was different than the woman that left the town to go up to the well. Because they would have just looked. Yeah, come tell me about a man. I know you can tell us about some men. Because you got a reputation. Something about her changed. There was something about the urgency because she'd seen him. she met the Messiah. She'd had an experience with him. Something about that encounter changed her so that there was a sense... I don't know what it was about her, but it was enough to get the men of the city up and come back out to find out who she was. He was. Here God touches his heart. He has an encounter with, with the living God. Realizes how, how sinful he is in himself. In his own desires, his own needs, his own place, and God says, "That's okay. I'll cleanse you." Touches his lips with the with the the, with the coals from that fire to cleanse him. And now God asks the question. Notice what God doesn't tell him to go; He asks the question. All right, who's going to go? I need somebody to go and speak for me. Who's going to go? Who's going to go and speak for me? See, what we've tried to do is we try to do it as programs and obligation. We need to be out there witnessing. We need to blah, blah blah blah, and that's all fine. But ultimately, the power's not in that. When you've seen a movie or going to a restaurant that just was wonderful, what do you do? You go tell people. What was Jesus' biggest challenge after miracles? Was to get them not to tell anybody. All right, I've cleansed you from leprosy, Matthew chapter 8, but don't go tell anybody. Was it reverse psychology? No, Jesus, that's lying. Jesus didn't do that. They had an encounter with him. They experienced something and they couldn't get their mouth shut. Who will go, God says. We're going to have to end here. Who will go? Who will go? Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here I am. Send me. We're going to have to end here for today. Because we have the privilege of sharing the Lord's table together. Father, we come to you now, (sighs) Father, the more I see of this, the more I realize how inadequate I am, how inadequate we are, but you know that, and I believe you're showing us just how inadequate we are in ourselves, so that we would know how desperately we need you We've struggled and striven and tried to do all kinds of things on our own with programs and, and there have been good results and good things that have come out of it. But I believe, Father, that where you're calling us to, those things won't work anymore. The things we've done in the past won't work anymore. For where you're calling us to go and what you're calling us to do, it's going to require a change, a change that will come only. Through an encounter and experience with the true and the living God. For that will change us. I don't know how you're going to do it. I don't know when you're going to do it. That's in your hands, Father. That's up to you. But I come seeking you, asking you to do that, calling upon you, reasoning with you, as you said to Isaiah come and reason with me. I come and plead with you to do this. We need you. Father, prepare each heart for whatever adjustment or change we've got to make so that we all can come together with you. And for that grace, we thank you now in advance. In Jesus' name, amen.